um, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, who is um, a, a fellow philosopher, um, Professor, Professor Tom Pink um, of um, King's College London. Um, and it's, it's a great uh, pleasure to have um, within, within England um, academics who um, support our work. There's, in fact, a great flowering of um, work, um, and one thinks of Eamon Duffy, obviously, but there are many others, um, in the historical and uh, liturgical fields, um, which uh, is very helpful to the, the traditional movement, which, is, which has resolved a lot of uh, debates, um, which, um, which have been rumbling on since, well, since, since the whole of the 20th century, really, about, um, about the liturgy. Um, but philosophy is another area which is absolutely essential um, that, um, that we engage with uh, modernist ideas, um, modernist interpretations um, of church teaching, um, and so on. And, and this is something which, um, which Professor Pink, um, in, in, within, within the, in the strange uh, subworld of, of um, analytic philosophy, which, uh, which he and I inhabit, um, has, been, has been doing. So, he's going to talk to us about, um, about religious liberty. Thank you very much. It's a very great honour to address the Latin Mass Society. I won't be directly addressing matters fundamentally liturgical because I, I'm not a liturgical expert. I... I'm, I'm a secular philosopher, as Joseph has said, and I, I teach in a secular university. But what I do do is work in contemporary political theory and also in the history of political thought, particularly the political thought of the Counter-Reformation period. And it's in the light of this that I became very interested in the very important changes that occur at the Second Vatican Council in the way that the Church thinks about church and state. And when I talk about changes in the way that the church thinks about church and state, one of the problems at hand is in what sorts of changes take place at the Second Vatican Council. How profound are they and what are their implications? A very constant feature of Catholic Christian thought is the division between two kinds of authority, church and state, corresponding to which there is division between the spiritual and the temporal, things heavenly and things earthly. And with this division, there is the further thought that there is an important superiority of the spiritual over the temporal, and hence of the church over the state. Problems arise and questions arise when we try to flesh out how to understand the relations between church and state, and in particular, how to understand the superiority of the church over the state, and the relation and the superiority of the spiritual over the temporal. This relationship between church and state ideally should involve a harmony because although the earthly is below the heavenly 
and the state is in some sense below the church, the earthly too comes from God. And we're told in the New Testament that the authority of the state also comes from God. And there must therefore be a harmony between the divine institution of the church and divine in a different way, but also divinely supported in uh, authority of the state. And historically, this relationship has been seen as taking harmonious form, an ideal form, in a very distinctive way. It's involved the state, which is a coercive authority, which has the power to make laws and to enforce those laws with punishments, to make sure the unwilling obey them. This has involved the state being a Christian state, embodying Christianity in its civil laws and supporting the true Catholic faith with the use of its um, power. The phrase brachium secularis, secular arm, has traditionally been used to describe the state's role in support of the Catholic faith. But then something very importantly different seems to happen at Vatican II. We have a declaration, Dignitatis Humanae, passed, which rules out as immoral the use of state power to assert the true religion or to defend it. Well, that's the natural reading, and I'm not going to challenge that reading. And at the time, people see this as a change. We have a change in the liturgy occurring shortly afterwards. In the Feast of Christ the King, there is a Vespers hymn, um, Te Secularum Principem, which before 1970 had two important verses. Addressing our Lord Jesus Christ, the hymn says, Let the rulers of the nations extol you with public honour. Let teachers and judges worship you, and laws and arts express you. Let rulers find renown in submission and allegiance to you. Bring under your gentle rule both the citizens' country and their homes. And this seems to be calling on our Lord to ensure that Christianity is embodied in the laws of the state and asserted with its coercive force, insofar as this furthers the mission of the church. These two verses are omitted from that same hymn, which still remains in Vespers for the new rite of the Feast of Christ the King, but they're, they're completely removed. And that people at the council thought something very importantly different was coming comes in a very important, is shown by a very important speech, given, it's on, on the handout which I hope you all have, um, just a month or so before Dignitatis Humanae is passed. It's a speech given by Charles Journet, who had just been made a cardinal by Paul VI, and whose support for the much-debated declaration was very important to its passing. He gives a speech in which he describes what's at stake in Dignitatis Humanae in the following way. From the time of Constantine, the rulers of the church often had recourse to the secular arm, brachium seculare, to defend the rights of the faithful and to preserve the temporal and order of, of Christendom. But under the influence of the preaching of the gospel, the distinction between temporal and spiritual things has gradually been made clearer 
and is today obvious to all. Therefore, and this is of the greatest moment, the doctrinal principle according to which matters temporal are subordinate to matters spiritual is in no way removed, but is applied in another way. That is by battling errors with the forces of light, not by force of arms. So we've got a very important picture here. Journet is arguing that we must hold on to the thought that the spiritual is superior to the temporal. And there must be a harmonious relation between the two. But he is introducing the thought that the state should no longer be using its coercive power, its power to make laws and enforce them by punishments, to support the Catholic faith. The state must be effectively neutral between religions. And the superiority of the spiritual has got to be asserted by forces of light in some moral and and intellectually persuasive way. And this understanding this involves having a better understanding of the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal. This detachment that he seems to be talking about of the state from the church is the result of and is accompanied by and enhances a better understanding of the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal. Notice Jornet is not claiming that the church was ever in doctrinal error to use the state as her coercive arm. He's very careful not to do that. Actually, we can see a change happening uh, since the Second Vatican Council. On the whole, people in official circles 30 or 40 years ago were very, very keen not to admit there'd been any doctrinal change in Dignitatis Humanae. That was the official line. But now we get people like Walter Kasper coming around and saying, oh, there was a doctrinal change, and that sh- a, a revision of previous doctrine, and that shows it's all right to have some more. It's kind of like well-known for saying this sort of thing. And a, a, a well-known uh, fellow Catholic academic with whom I've been in dispute, Martin Ronheimer, a considerably favoured individual officially, has actually written articles in Nova Vetera, a well-known journal, arguing that, in fact, Dignitas Humanae does, whatever people have said in the past, involve a doctrinal change. So there's been a sudden, sudden move in, in, in semi-official circles towards a more radical view of what was going on in Dignitatis Humanae, which is full of implications, this change. What I'm going to suggest to you now is that it actually wasn't a doctrinal change. We're looking at the doctrinal claims in Dignitas Humanae about how the state doesn't have the right to use coercive power to defend Catholic truth. That doesn't actually involve a doctrinal change, though it might appear to. And that's got something to do with something I'm going to discuss later, with a very important part of Dignitas Humanae, which Jornet was very well aware of, the bit in Dignitas Humanae right at the beginning, when it says... This declaration preserves traditional teaching concerning people's obligations to the church. Now, it might not be obvious how preserving traditional teaching about people's obligations to the church should should avoid what appears to be a change in teaching about the the authority of the state, but actually it does do that job, and I'm going to come back to that. So, we're looking at the strict teaching on religious liberty. I'm going to be arguing there isn't a strict doctrinal change at all. Something else is happening. The attachment of church and state has, in terms of traditional Catholic magisterial teaching and theology, radical implications to the authority of the state. 
which are being drawn out in Dignitas Humanae. But there's another side to Jeanet, which is not, I think, magisterial teaching, but is theology. It's the theology we get in the speech that he gives at the council, which is a sort of, has become, for a long time being, a quasi-official or establishment theology, which is to the effect that the change marked by Dignitatis Humanae, the detachment of church and state, is somehow a good thing. It involves um, uh, something happening under the influence of the gospel, and it involves a better understanding of the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal. And I'm going to suggest that this official theology, or establishment theology, has to be radically separated from the magisterial teaching because it's false. It's really badly false. And if it wasn't obviously false in 1965, we can see now that it's clearly not working. And that's because what Jeanet claims, that the the passing of Dignitas Humanae marks a better understanding of the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal, this constant division, um, is quite wrong. The passing of Dignitas Humanae has led to a change in relations between, or has has accompanied a change in relations between church and state that has involved the loss of an understanding, particularly on the side of the state, of the distinction between spiritual and temporal. And this has extremely malign consequences. It puts the, the church in a state of inescapable conflict with the modern state. There is no prospect of harmony whatsoever. And that this is happen, happening should not be a surprise. It was entirely predicted by uh, both prior magisterial teaching and what passed for the official theology of the church before the Second Vatican Council. So, I'm going to say the doctrinal teaching, magisterial teaching on what, we, on what the state has the authority to do by way of coercing, that hasn't changed. But we should separate that issue from this progressive theology that Jeanne is putting forward about how the gospel allows human beings to progress. That's nonsense, I think. That's wrong. And we, the church needs to abandon this theology. And I'm going to argue why it's wrong. Okay, to take matters further, we need, I think, to go back to traditional magisterial teaching about the relations between church and state and the general theology that accompanied accompanied it. Central to this theology and and teaching, which in its clearest form is defended by Lear XIII in encyclicals such as Immortale Dei in the 1880s, is a story about coercive power and the authorities that exercise it. And law, obviously, which is at the heart of this idea of coercion. First of all, we have the state. And the the authority of the state serves a function. We come into the world bearing human nature with needs uh, uh, and responsibilities to each other. None of us can look after ourselves. We need to live in a community. And this community is governed by a natural law, a moral law that comes with our human nature and obedience to, to which on our part is willed by God. This is the natural law. And the point of the natural law is to take us to a state of, to the natural good, a state of natural happiness and natural justice. And to enable us to attain this state and to cooperate together to meet our needs, we have the state, who drives its authority immediately from the human community, but ultimately from the will of God. And the state passes laws, the civil laws of the state, and accompanies them, unfortunately, when necessary in this fallen world, it is often necessary, with threats of punishment, 
to get the unwilling or the bad to, to obey the laws so that we can attain the natural good and live in an ordered community. But we don't just live our lives at the natural level. We are fallen humans and our nature is damaged, and I'll come back to that, but we have also been offered a higher end than one that naturally comes to us, one that transcends what we're naturally capable of, the supernatural good, the supernatural end of heaven, where we will enjoy, if we attain it, the beatific vision of God in heaven, something that is beyond our powers to do naturally as human beings. And this supernatural end has been offered us through revelation, not reason, that's how we get to know about the natural law, but through revelation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself again a lawgiver. And he comes with a new law, the law of the new covenant, that will take us, with the help of divine grace, grace required to raise us up from the natural level, to the good of heaven. And with this supernatural law of the new covenant comes another coercive authority, I have to use the word coercive, but that's exactly the traditional conception. The church. The church is referred to by Leo XIII as a potestas. It has its juridical power. It has the right to make laws, accompanying which is a jurisdiction, and the right to enforce those laws with punishments on those who fall within her jurisdiction. The jurisdiction is based on baptism. And the jurisdiction is exercised by bishops and and principally the Pope as shepherds. When in the early modern period, people like Bellamin and Suarez, Jesuit thinkers, who are very, very important for Leo XIII's political theology, debate um, what the church is, they are constantly keen to emphasize the church has a coercive power and authority. And this is founded in the picture of the church we get in Scripture. And the key passage which everyone always discusses is uh, John chapter 21 when Christ gives St. Peter the role of being a shepherd. Now my my grandfather was heavily involved in sheep farming and I think in modern modern world we tend to think of sheep farmers as as cuddly as the sheep they, they, they farm. But anyone who knows anything about sheep farming knows that not only are sheep stupid but shepherds for that very reason have to be extremely forceful. Their staff has to turn into a disciplinary rod or virga. And this point is made with relentless uh, enjoyment by people like Bellamin and Suarez when addressing those that doubt the church might have this coercive authority. Of course, the church has a coercive authority because the bishops are shepherds and they have a coercive rod. If you look at uh, uh, pictures of our Lord in the catacombs, a picture of him as the good shepherd, which you have in in the New Catechism, He is, of course, carrying a sheep, one of his wandering flock, around on his shoulders. He's clearly picked the sheep forcibly up and holding them there physically. He's not engaging in dialogue. (laughs) So we have two coercive authorities. We've got the church, which directs us to the supernatural end, And then we have the state that directs us to the natural end. And each can use quite meaty forms of coercive power to discipline us uh, when necessary, unfortunately necessary. So, um, how are these two powers to be related? 
Well, classic account of this is given in Leo XIII's Immortality Day, but it goes back to the Jesuit political theology of the Counter-Reformation and before then. These two powers, Pope Leo argues, must have an ordered relation. We can't have them since the same people will be under each authority. You'll be a citizen of a state and you can also be a member of the church, baptised member of the church. There must be an ordered relation between them. They must each have their own sphere of competence and one must have priority over the other when it comes to any division of resources or possible uh, uh, assistance. Clearly the spiritual end is higher, so the state is properly sovereign when it just has to do with temporal matters, but when it comes to the supernatural good and what depends on that, the state must subordinate the pursuit of the natural end to the pursuit of the supernatural end. As a Christian state, it must lend its authority to the church and support the authority of the church, giving its coercive power uh, as a resource to the church to enable the church to do its mission. And again, this is part of a wider vision of the relationship between the spiritual and the temporal. Um, Just as Bellamin argues, you as a private individual retain your property rights as a member of the church, that part of the natural order, property doesn't go away, but you're under an obligation to pay money to support your parish, so as the ruler or, or state official of a Christian state, you are under an obligation, if it's a Christian state, to make your power available when it's required to the church. Exactly the same way as a private individual makes their goods available to the church. Because the Christian community is one. And everything temporal in it remains perfectly good and temporal. And it allows it to continue to have its normal relation to the natural end. But it must, must subordinate, be subordinate to the fundamental important pursuit of the supernatural end. There can be no part of the temporal world that is outside the pursuit of the supernatural end. So... this this vision of the relationship between a Christian state and the church is embodied in a very, very important simile or metaphor, um, which is the idea of soul-body union. And we get it in in Immortali Dei. Um, Pope Leo says, The Almighty, therefore, has given the charge of the human race to two powers, the ecclesiastical and the civil, the one being set over divine, the other over human things. There must accordingly exist between these two powers a certain orderly connection which may be compared to the union of the soul and body in man. And by the soul, I think he means the intellectual soul. I mean, this, this analogy goes right back to Gregory of Nazianzan. It's a major feature of Counter-Reformation thought. And it's been magisterially taught in 1885 by Pope Leo XIII. And it's like this. Your body has its own ends. You know, the, the, the heart must go on beating and it's in charge of that. But when it comes to the intellectual ends pursued by the soul that's united to this body, the body must then obey the soul. If it's part of my intellectual project that I will spend the afternoon in thought or going to the cinema or whatever, my body does what I, as the intellectual soul says and, and helps me get there through its physical power. Similarly, um, the state will be body to the church's soul. And when um, the church has its legitimate and higher end, the supernatural end, 
the state will move to the church's order in order to attain that supernatural end. Why does the state do this? Why is it under an obligation to do that? Because we're talking about a Christian state ruled by the baptised. And a very, very important feature of the traditional theology of baptism is that it involves a theory of the obligations that come to you as a baptised person. They're still in canon law. They're still in the new code of canon law that the baptised have obligations. That's how they can be governed by canon law. But these obligations, traditionally, as traditionally conceived, could take political form. If you were a baptised ruler of a Christian state, you had specifically political obligations to the church to make your office available to her. And this turns up in canon law. If you look at the 1917 Code of Canon Law, the first Code of Canon Law that we have, that arrives in the 20th century, we have Canon 2198. And it says, An offence, delictum, that violates ecclesiastical law alone is by its nature to be preceded against by the ecclesiastical authority alone. Ecclesiastical law, good religion, that's the business of ecclesiastical authority. Claiming the help of the secular arm, brachium seculari, the state, when the same ecclesiastical authority judges this necessary or opportune. What we have here is a very clear, what I'm going to call principal agent relationship between church and state. That's why we use the word brachium seculari, secular arm. Secular arm of the church, um, like the arm of your body does your bidding. And it's your agent. The authority under which it acts is the church's authority, not the state's. But it's doing the church's bidding as her agent. And it's doing her bidding under an obligation to do so, mediated through the sacrament of baptism. Because code of canon law combined only the baptised, and that includes obligations on the state. Okay, a further feature of this traditional conception, and I think, unfortunately, many people in the traditional movement have failed to spot this, is that when it comes to the use of coercion in matters of religion, the state has no authority of its own. When it's using coercive authority in matters of religion under the traditional arrangement of soul-body union, it's doing the soul's work on the authority of the soul, on the authority of the church. Um, Leo, uh, Leo was very, very clear about this. Look again at the, 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 the second quote I give from Immortality Day. One of the two powers has for its proximate and chief object the well-being of this mortal life, that's the state. The other, the everlasting joys of heaven, that's the church. Whatever, therefore, in things human is of a sacred character, it's very general, quoque modo, sacrum, he says, whatever belongs either of its own nature or by reason of the end to which it is referred to the salvation of souls or to the worship of God is wholly subject to the power and judgment of the church. The state has no jurisdiction of its own. Very, very clear in matters of religion. And this is just what the Jesuit political theologians of the early modern period thought. And, and Leo certainly got his view from them. But he's magisterially teaching it. Now, this actually... The, 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 the authority of the state in matters of religion is a very, very interesting topic. And it's central to the crisis we now face. And let me say something more about it. It's very, very natural to see that if we're dealing with revealed religion that's aiming at a supernatural end, the state is unlikely to have any authority of its own. Because as I've explained, the state is about taking us to the natural end, and its authority serves that natural end, natural happiness and natural justice in this life. Why should it have anything of its own authority to do 
with some supernatural end that comes from above through revelation um, that involves transcending what human nature is naturally capable of and is anyway equipped with the coercive authority of its own, the church. And if you read the um, uh, uh, political theology of the early modern period, uh, Catholic theologians in favour with Rome are constantly saying the state has no authority, for example, to limit Jewish or Muslim worship because it's not against natural law. And the state's only got an authority of its own to punish crimes against natural law. So get off the back of the Jews and Muslims if it's your authority that's what's at stake, because they're good monotheists. But there's another form of religion that's not supernatural, that's not taking us to heaven, but is also possible. And it's what uh, philosophers and theologians have in the past called natural religion. We can know by the light of natural reason, as Vatican I reminds us, that we are created by God with our human nature, and that our human nature, through our rationality and freedom, bears the image of God. And this is part of what is available to our reason uh, uh, as governed by natural law. So just as governed by natural law, we have a duty to religion, but not to a religion that offers us supernatural salvation in heaven, that God might or might not offer that, us that, that's, that's grace. But it's a good that involves natural happiness in a natural human community. The sort of community, the good of which is fostered and protected by the authority of the state. So you might well think that there's a, a kind of religion, natural religion, where the state should have a continuing authority. This religion will be rational monotheism and will involve the worship of the one God in some suitably dignified way on the basis not of any revelation but the knowledge of God we have through created things. There's a very important feature of the Catholic tradition that that is not the direction in which it goes. Although natural justice generally remains within the authority of the state, religion, even though it's naturally possible for us, is taken as such out of the authority of the state and given to that of the church. A very, very interesting discussion of this is in Suarez, um, in Suarez's treatise on canon law, in De Legibus, which is on page two of your handout. And he's talking about how authority in matters of religion has changed over time. And it's changed with the coming of Christ. He says... And he's talking about who has the power to make laws in matters of religion and enforce religious duties. He says, as regards this area of religion, civil authority, the authority of the state, is more limited now within the church than it was before the Christian religion. For once the care of religion was oriented towards the virtue and happiness of the commonwealth, of the state, as we noted above. But now religion itself and spiritual salvation and spiritual happiness are the priority and the rest for their sake... And therefore, while once the care of religion either belonged to the authority of the ruler or was joined with that authority in one and the same person or was subordinated to the authority of the ruler, now, however, the care of religion is specially given to the shepherds of the church, the bishops. What happens when Christ comes, religion changes, the nature of religion changes. It's no longer oriented towards natural happiness in a natural human community based on a rational worship of God alone. It's based on another de destination, that of heaven, and it involves things that would never exist in, in, in natural religion, sacraments, like baptism and the Eucharist, that enable divine grace to raise us above what we're naturally capable of. And because this radically changes the way religion works in a way that ordinary justice doesn't change, promise-making and keeping doesn't change just because of the coming of Christ, but religion does, 
And since there must be one single authority in matters of religion, we can't have two competing authorities, and since the supernatural now it's arrived must take priority, everything in religion must now go to the church. That's the Leonine view. Very clearly. What happens then when you enter into a world, and I mean, what happens then when you enter into a world where the state is no longer Christian, where the state is no longer ruled by the baptised, or even if baptised people rule it, they do not publicly aspire to be Christian. The state no longer publicly aspires to be a Christian state. Then it's not, it doesn't look as though it's going to be any longer possible for state officials to make their public authority available to the church. If the, if the Christian allegiance of the state is not public, then you can't privately and surreptitiously lend your authority to the church. It's all got to be public. So that's the way states are properly run. So what's going to happen when secularisation stops states being Christian, when secularisation removes their public Christian allegiance, the state is no longer going to be in a position to act as the church's agent. It's then going to have no right or authority whatsoever, even one borrowed from the church, acting as the church's agent. It's no longer the church's agent. It's going to have no right or authority whatsoever to go in for any form of coercion of religion. Because religion, which is directed at the supernatural end, is now entirely the business of another coercive authority from which the state is now detached, whose proper business and native authority is to deal with the supernatural end, the good of heaven. And this is the language actually taught by Dignitatis Humanae. If you look at the very important quote uh, from Dignitatis Humanae, under religion as transcending the authority of the state, we have this very important passage. Furthermore, those private and public acts of religion by which people relate themselves to God from the sincerity of their hearts, of their nature transcend the earthly and temporal levels of reality. So the state, whose peculiar purpose is to provide the temporal common good, should certainly recognise and promote the religious life of its citizens, the state, the state will smile at you, with equal certainty it exceeds the limits of, authority if, of its authority if it takes upon itself to direct or prevent religious activity. So the state can't embody Christian obligations in the laws, civil laws of, of the land because it only ever had the right to do that while acting as the church's agent. Therefore, it's, it's basically just got to look after the natural end from which religion has now been removed by the supernaturalization of religion. As Dignitatis Humanae says, uh, the worship of God uh, now of its nature transcends the earthly and temporal levels of reality. Well, that wouldn't be true of natural religion, but it's clearly true of religion now its nature has been changed by the coming of Christ and supernaturalized. So one way of looking at Dignitatis Humanae is it's a document that draws out the consequences of Leonine soul-body theology for what happens when the body gets detached from the soul. The body can then no longer act as agent of the soul, and the matters that are a concern of the soul, the supernatural good that is the concern of the church, must now be removed from the direct authority, from involving the authority of the state, even as an agent. And so you have the decree of religious liberty. That's an automatic consequence of traditional Catholic teaching in church and state for a condition where the state is no longer acting as the church's agent, as part of a soul-body union with the church. That, I think, is what's going on. That's why I think people like Journet, partly why people like Journet, who knew about this stuff, who was a notable historical theologian, 
and wrote one of the last major treatises on the church as a coercive authority, L'Eglise du Verbe Incarné, that's why he wasn't bothered doctrinally by Dignitas Simone. Because he and his friend Maritain had come to think that the modern state was inescapably going to be detached from the church. It was going to be secular. Okay, well, but you could have done Dignitatis Humanae this way. You could have said, well, the ideal situation is sole body union of church and state, as Pope Leo XIII said, but unfortunately they've all got rather godless um, and, and, and the state has finally rebelled, so I'm afraid we're going to have to recognise this fact. We're going to have to recognise the fact that the state no longer can play a, a role in enforcing uh, uh, religious obligations, in defending religious truth, but this is very regrettable. This, of course, is not the language of Dignitatis Humana. This is not its rhetoric. The rhetoric is all the language of the good, of progress. And now I want to say something about that and why that's not plausible. Journet and Maritain had been unhappy with the theology of soul-body union for many years. Maritain had been working to think of a new way of understanding a harmony of church and state from the 1930s onwards. And the culmination of his work was in, in a very, very important series of lectures he gave in North America called Man and the State that came out in 1951. They knew that they risked serious doctrinal difficulties with the church if they just condemned the soul body, theology of soul-body union because it had been taught by the church quite officially. It was in canon law. So what they did, they said, we need to distinguish between now and then. In what they call the sacral period of the Middle Ages, where people had a less advanced development, uh, understanding of the distinction between the uh, spiritual and the temporal, it was all right then for the church to use the state as her religious arm. But now the state is secularized, and this is pro the progress of the gospel. We can't do that anymore. And we need to have a new model of harmony between church and state that involves merely a moral role for the church, not a juridical one anymore. The church will no longer be privileged by the state. The state will no longer defend the church, but the church will just acknowledge in a neutral way the church's moral authority. And this will work. And there will be a harmony. And the Christian mission will carry on in the future in peace with the state. But we're not contra contradicting the past because that was just the Middle Ages. Unfortunately, of course, Leo XIII's defense of soul-body union theology came in 1880 in the modern period. It's not a feature of the Sacro Middle Ages. It's, it's the post-French Revolutionary Italian unification period. Of course, Leo XIII knew that it was very, very hard to organise a soul-body union between church and state, but he still presented it as a continuing ideal. Why did he do that? Well, think what happens if, according to the traditional theology, the church and the state are detached. So the state no longer publicly recognises the truth of the Christian religion. Well, one thing's going to happen for a start. It's not going to recognise anymore that religion is a field of human life completely transcending the authority of the state, as Dignitatis Humanae teaches and as Leo XIII taught in Immortale Dei. Why is it not going to do that? You're only going to believe that if you believe that religion now properly takes supernatural form if you believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ as raising us up from our natural condition to something transcending it. But that's a religious view of religion. It's not available to natural reason. There's no reason why a non-Christian should believe it. A non-Christian could think of religion as just as much 
important, uh, something important to human happiness was just as much within the authority of the state as any other area of human life, like transport or, or education. So you're only going to believe in this dignitas humana immortale dei doctrine of religion entirely transcending the authority of the state if you already believe in, 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 in Catholic doctrine. And the state is only going to accept this view of things if it actually recognises the truth of the Christian religion, which, of course, Dignitatis Humanae and John A. are pushing it away from doing at the level of policy and rhetoric. But it gets worse. I've assumed that there's a natural good called natural religion that has to do with our identity, a naturally knowable identity that we possess as creation, creations of God. If you detach the church and the state, can you assume, can you rely on the content of the natural law and natural reason continuing to be appreciated by the state? No, you can't. Why can't you? Because of the fall. Human nature is damaged, and we need divine grace, not only to raise us to the supernatural end, but to repair the damage done to human nature by the fall. Without that grace, not sanctifying grace that takes us to the supernatural, but healing grace that repairs the natural, we cannot reliably be relied upon to get the natural law, law right uh, in detail and apply it. So if the state no longer has the help of divine grace provided by the church, the state is liable to get the natural law wrong. This is a constant theme in the political theology of the 19th century popes. If you look at the handout, quanta cura. Where religion has been removed from civil society and the doctrine of authority of divine revelation repudiated, if we don't have a church-state union, a soul-body union, the genuine notion itself of justice and human right is darkened and lost. Again, Leo XIII, about 50 years later. Therefore, the law of Christ ought to prevail in human society and be the guide and teacher of public as well as of private life. Since this is so by divine decree, and no man may with impunity contravene it, it is an evil thing for any state where Christianity does not hold the place that belongs to it. When Jesus Christ is absent, human reason fails, okay, damaged nature is not repaired, being bereft of its chief protection and light, <clears throat> and the very end is lost sight of, for which, under God's providence, human, natural human society has been built up. The end is the obtaining by the members of society of natural good through the aid of civil unity, though always in harmony with the perfect and eternal good which is above nature. But when men's minds are clouded, both rulers and ruled go astray, for they have no safe line to follow nor end to aim at. Now, I can say as a secular political philosopher, but I don't think I need to tell you, that the modern state is not very good on natural law. If you look at the natural law governing life, or the natural law governing marriage, it's pretty bad at grasping and applying it. And has become worse with every year that passes. This would not have been surprised to these holy pontiffs of the 19th century. And this doesn't just affect life and marriage issues, it affects the distinction between spiritual and temporal, of which Jeanet was so confidently claiming we had a clear understanding. Because since Vatican II, and I think it was happening before, if you talk to secular moral philosophers or political philosophers about religion and the spiritual, they do not treat it as a distinctive good, let alone as a good that transcends the authority of the state. 
They don't think of it as a distinctive good because they don't believe the natural law. They don't believe in God, despite the fact that God's existence is naturally knowable. They don't believe that we bear the image of God. They don't believe we have any natural or moral duty to worship God. Religion for them is a puzzling phenomenon. They have to provide a non-religious theory of religion. And it involves assimilating religion just to various forms of personal commitment and group identity, over all of which the modern state will certainly claim jurisdiction. So I will end with a quotation from a, 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 a much-loved colleague of mine, Cécile Laborde. She teaches political philosophy at UCL, up the street from where I teach it at King's College London. And um, she gave, she's not a Catholic. She's, she was born a Catholic in Quebec, but like many people in Quebec, she is a Catholic no longer. Uh, she knows about Maritain and Courtney Murray, of course. Um, she gave a very interesting talk uh, last year, which is about to be published in Legal Theory, on religious liberty. She's got a whack load of money from the government to uh, examine this vexed topic as well. Look at what she says. She's saying there's no distinctive good of religion. If religion really is only a subset of a broader class of beliefs, identities or practices which should be treated on a par with them, like group identity, cultural identity, you know, wearing kilts, hobbies, things like that, um, then large areas of existing law which carve out special protections or special prohibitions for religion become normatively indefensible. Fortunately, normative philosophers, that's Cecile and me, I suppose, by contrast to legal scholars, are not beholden to constitutional coherence. We don't need to worry about the American Constitution and what it says about religion. That's coming out of date. So they can bite the bullet and argue that the special treatment afforded religion qua religion and the law has lost any normative purchase in contemporary society. This would allow them to explain away constitutional tenets such as a special ban on state-age religion, such as in the American Constitution, the ministerial exception, we won't, we won't interfere with who you make priests, because that's religion, you know, the ministerial exception, as archaic remnants of the discredited two-realm, church-state theory. Instead, they would start from the idea that the liberal state must be decidedly post-secular and take account of the deep pluralism of values, ideas, and identities in contemporary societies. What this means is that the state is going to look at the Catholic faith as another hobby, another form of group identity, It'll let you alone, provide, you know, as a way of showing respect, equal respect to citizens, until it thinks that a better way of showing equal respect to citizens is, is limiting you. Like, you might not be allowed to have a club for men only. You might not be able to have a, a ministry for men only, because that would not be to show equal respect to citizens. And if you say, but we're running a religion, you can't interfere with that, that's not, nothing to do with the state, they'll say, but we don't think religion's distinctive. We think you're just running a club and act towards you accordingly and this will happen and is happening. So when Journet said in 1965 the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal is better understood than ever, I think he was talking nonsense then and it's even more nonsense now. The only way to ensure a proper understanding of the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal, the superiority of the spiritual and the proper freedom of the church in matters of religion is in a union, soul body union with the state that accepts Christian revelation, accepts its supernatural character of religion, and then is informed by divine grace in a way that allows it to retain understanding of the natural law. If you don't have that, you've got conflict. <laughs>